Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. Today's a special day. In the next two hours, we're devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. We sing happy birthday to you, and may all your dreams come true. Happy, happy And we wish to extend a happy, happy birthday to the owner of Contact Talk Radio and to one of its great hosts, Mr. Cameron Steele. Happy birthday, Cameron. Well, thank you so much, Eldon and Reverender. I really appreciate it and appreciate the song. It's uh, it's a great day to be uh, to be me. <laughs> to be you, that's right. That's and right. you never get a better one. That's right. It's a good version of me today. <laughs> Uh, I love it. Well, happy birthday again. Thank you very much. All right. Our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea. Uh, And I'm not sure. Is Andrea in the chat room today? No, she's not actively in the chat room, but she lurks in the background, and she pops up periodically. All right. Well, bless her and her new baby, Aiden, new baby boy. Uh, they're there waiting to visit with you in our chat room. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have some truly great folks that join us every week, so Ravinder, tell us about it, please. It's a great chat room, great conversation, very stimulating, entertaining, fun, great group of people to, you know, share ideas with. So do come and join us. That is Provocative Enlightenment dot com forward slash chat all right we had an interesting question come in last week one worth considering in my opinion who listens to shows like provocative enlightenment and you know we have never considered the demographic per se i do know that many of our listeners are also coast to coast am listeners and well the folks at coast to coast have some demographics on their audience So instead of our usual spotlight this week, I've asked my friend Tom Danheiser to join us. Tom is a senior producer for George Nury's Coast to Coast AM show. And if you don't listen to Coast to Coast, you don't listen to radio. And Tom is more than familiar with his listening audience. So welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Tom Danheiser. Eldon, how are you? Good morning, or I guess good afternoon where you are. And you know, I talked to Cameron a couple times. I didn't know it was his birthday. I would have wished him happy birthday. So happy birthday, Cameron. Good for you, sir. Uh, Listen, Tom, I know you're familiar with the demographics of your listening audience, and in particular, their spiritual or religious leaning, together with their attitudes about life and the world we live in. So can you flesh that out for us a little bit? What type of listener is attracted to your programming? I can sum that up in one word, which is, I will give you more than one word, but everybody. The, our demographics range from kids who have called in who are 13 years old to people who have called in who are 99 years old. And 
they uh, they just gamut. They go all the way up and down the age range, and their beliefs vary. But I, I feel that. I can you hear me? Okay. I can. You're doing fine. Okay, yeah. Great. So I, I feel that um, I'm hearing another voice, Elton, but I'll keep talking. So okay. um, I feel that I feel that the beliefs with our audience are are very spiritual, not a god per se, but just someone, something up there, whatever you want to name it. That's interesting. You know, what do you think, Tom? I mean, coast to coast to me is the icon of all radio shows. I mean, you you entertain all kinds of different guests. What do you think is the magic that attracts everybody? Uh, That's a great question. And uh, I think the magic that attracts everybody is wonderment and hope. You know, you can't replace hope. Hope is something that everybody has. We hope that things get better in our lives. We hope that the next bill from the dentist will be smaller. We we hope that the grocery store has the item we want. We hope, we hope. So I think hope drives a lot of our wonderment and a lot of things that people, you know, tune into Coast to Coast to see if they can get. All right. Tell me what's happening on Coast to Coast, my favorite radio show. <laughs> Yours should be your favorite radio show, but thank you. Well, you know, actually, yours is my favorite. Mine is my second. That's the truth. (laughs) That's a very nice thing for you to say. And by the way, thank you for coming up and doing our TV show. You did a great job. Oh, well, thank you, sir. (laughs) So, what what have you got happening? Well, here's what's happening. We produced last year for Christmas. We produced a charity CD with uh, proceeds going to veterans hospitals, and we've decided to reissue it this year. And it's just, you know, if you're a person that likes Christmas, it's just a fantastic Christmassy CD, traditional holiday songs. And the twist is that the songs are done by coast guests. So we've got people like Whitley Strieber, Greg Braden, uh, Pat Boone did a a track on it. Even George Norrie sings a Christmas song. And uh, we're reissuing it this year. Uh, with proceeds helping uh, the veterans hospitals of the United States, makes a great Christmas gift, and I, I just thank you for the opportunity to even let your audience know about it. So, so uh, most people I don't think know that George sings, but he's really a remarkable singer. But how do they get this uh, the CD? You can go if you're interested. You can go to Amazon.com. There's a big picture of it, and you can put in Holiday Magic Coast Style. That's Holiday Magic Coast Style, or you can just go to the Coast to Coast Am website, and there's a link directly there. And the proceeds go where? To help veterans hospitals throughout the United States. You know, a couple of years ago, um, I, I had a chance to tour some of the hospitals that the veterans stay in, and i got to tell you, Elton, they're atrocious. And so last year, when I got the idea to produce the CD, I thought, where, you know, where could I, I donate money to? And that was the perfect thing I thought of is, is to, you know, send to the hospitals because they need it. They need it. They do. And I can't think of uh, I can't think of a better uh, gift, a gift to the family, a gift to yourself. Wonderful, delightful music and a gift to those who have sacrificed so much to keep our lives safe here at home. Tom, Absolutely. it's wonderful having you to the show. Uh and I'm going to go out and get that CD myself just as soon as this show ends. You tell George hello for me, will you? 
I will, Alden. Thanks so much for your time and for having me on today. Oh, hey, and I'm going to bring you back. You know, remember, I, I want to talk to you about what it's like to produce Coast to Coast. So one of these days, you're going to be the show, huh? Well, I'll come back. I'll be on. I'll be uh, glad to. And, you know, Elton, I don't know if you uh, sing or play an instrument, but we might be doing this CD again next year, so you keep that in mind. I'll do that, my friend, but I'm not so sure your audience would rush to buy that one. (laughs) You have a great afternoon. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks again, Elton. All right. All of you out there, go get that CD. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show was all about the alien plan to control humanity with Professor David Jacobs. Art wrote, wow, what a show. If your guest was not as credentialed as he is, I would just say this is all poppycock. What do you think, Dr. Taylor? Well, you know, Art, I'm not sure. The jury is still out as far as I'm concerned. I know folks who swear there are aliens here. We've entertained several on this show. I once even had a colleague promise to have them visit me so I would have first-hand knowledge. That visit never came. I guess I'm one who might be called a doubting Thomas when it comes to alien beings inhabiting Earth. Richard wrote, I'm interested to know how it all comes together, the big picture. How does the rise in the evidence of non-material consciousness, people like Ed Dames, global warming, terrorism, etc., relate to alien activity on the earth why bother if we're about to annihilate ourselves this guy is just too real and human to be full of baloney wowzer freakish but all too believable danielle wrote all encounters i have read or watched have claimed to have had a blurred memory of being abducted i would like to read his interviews and see if they are the same people i read watched I believe the government has weapons for things not of our world, and there is much more known. It just depends on your leak. Have to love a dripping faucet. Mark wrote, Eldon Taylor's new book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, exposes the many ways in which our ability to make independent choices is being manipulated. The book contends that we do have free will, and it is up to us to identify such manipulations so that we may reclaim our lives. I believe that free will is an essential feature of our nature. Free will pertains specifically to conceptual awareness, which requires conscious effort. The choice to think is the choice to be objective, to be governed by facts rather than whims. According to Dr. David Jacobs, space aliens seek to control our minds through abductions and interbreeding. If this is true then the question is whether the aliens plan to remove this essential aspect of our nature. If indeed we lose our capacity to think and act independently, then we are helplessly doomed to an alien-inspired world. However, if we still retain this essential aspect of our nature, then the space invasion represents just one more gotcha, which would attempt to subordinate but not permanently remove our free will. Now, our very own Andrea stopped by with this message. Hello, chat roomies. Just wanted to stop by and say hi and thank you for the well wishes. Baby Aiden is doing great. He is such a joy. I will be listening to the show, but can't stay to chat. Bye. 
Andrea has been a real blessing to us, Rav, hasn't she? She's a total blessing. Uh, she is such a vital part of what we do that regardless of where she is, we just work with her from a distance instead. Yeah, well, her energy is here even if she's not. That's correct. Moving on, John wrote, Eldon Taylor as well and truly documented the path we are on in his new book, Gotcha. I have seen and noted it in my own life, and Eldon's book discusses it in the larger scheme of things. For all of those who look around and ask, how did we get here? This book addresses the situation. Enlightening wrote, Gotcha is succinct, mesmerizing, and scary as anything I've ever read. A must-read for anyone who truly wishes to understand what it will take to change. Did Gotcha scare you, Ravinder? Um, no, I wouldn't say it. Well, yeah, yeah, yes and no. You know, I found it empowering the fact that we now have the information to be able to do something about it. And as I've said frequently, there are lots of things I do differently. I approach everything differently. I think differently as a result. So I hope it's harder for them to puppet me, but it is, it's a constant, it's a constant task. The real question is what will it take to change? That's true. Okay, all right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldentaylor.com. Or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, a show I've been really, really looking forward to. Metaphysical Speculations with Dr. Bernardo Castro. What do you do with the big question what is consciousness is it only an illusion are the materialists correct when they inform us that consciousness emerges from the complex nature of the brain and its activity think back to our guest nancy ellen abrams who wrote a god that might be real in her view god is emergent a single ant behaves differently than a colony of ants Somehow the collective nature of the colony gives rise to an emergent intelligence. Now you might fairly ask, yes, but is the colony really conscious? Intelligent as a group, perhaps, but is this consciousness? Questions such as this beg for a metaphysical solution. Consciousness seems to be a part of our being, so what is the real nature of consciousness? Are the materialists correct? Enter today's guest, Bernardo Kastrup, is a Ph.D. in computer engineering with specializations in artificial intelligence and reconfigurable computing. He has worked as a scientist in some of the world's foremost research laboratories, including the European Organization for Nuclear Research and the Philips Research Laboratories, where the Casimir effect of quantum field theory was discovered. Bernardo has authored many scientific papers and five philosophy books, Rationalist Spirituality, Dreamed Up Reality, Meaning in Absurdity, Why Materialism is Baloney, and Brief Peaks Beyond. We'll be looking into Brief Peaks Beyond today, but I'll, it'll be hard for me to avoid Why material, Materialism is Baloney. These are two really great books. All of his works are good books. He has also been an entrepreneur and a founder of a successful high-tech startup, Next to a managerial position in the high-tech industry, he maintains a philosophy blog, an audio-video podcast, and continues to develop his ideas about the nature of reality. He has lived and worked in four different countries across continents, currently residing in the Netherlands, 
So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Bernardo Castro. Hey, Eldon. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's indeed a pleasure. I've been really, you know, I and I have to apologize to you on air. This, I guess, third time is the charm. We have had <laughs> you scheduled to the show twice before. And on two occasions, I mean, once we had a tree fall that knocked out all the power lines at the station. Well, anyway, on two occasions, we had to cancel the show because of, you know, I don't know, un- unseen situations. But it's really good to have you here. And I have to tell you that maybe that extra time gave me some additional time to review more than just your book, Brief Peaks Beyond, which we'll get into. But before we do, we like to get three things out from each of our guests. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And then, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us about your life as a young person. I mean, what did you want to be when you grew up? Were you popular? Were you involved in sports? What was your childhood like? When did you decide you wanted to be a scientist? Oh, that comes from, from very early. Well, f- first of all, let me apologize for my voice. I'm battling a code that normally don't sound uh, this raspy, but <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, you sound good. Since, okay. Since very early, um, I wanted to be involved in science. I think it's the influence of my father, who was an architect, but uh, had science as a hobby. So my home was filled with science books, magazines. Uh, uh, My father played with uh, scientific experiments at home as well as a hobby in the garage. So that comes from from very, very early. I think the question is, when did I converge towards computer engineering? And, uh, and part of that motivation was um, the very thing that today I sort of argue against, which is uh, that, uh, in my view, infantile notion that we can create consciousness in silicon through artificial means. I think that that idea, that dream, infantile as it was, uh, originally drove me towards computer engineering. And as a computer engineer, engineer, I ended up involved in, in the world's uh, biggest scientific experiments at CERN in Switzerland, for instance, where I helped design uh, the detectors of the Large Hadron Collider. Mm-hmm. All right. <clears throat> Let's just go right straight to your book, because what you said, I think, is a punchline. Uh, there is an idea that you know, consciousness, and, and, and I'm, I, I'm just going to touch it because I want you to flesh it out later, but there is an idea that, that consciousness is, uh, is something that can be put together in little pieces like little bits of matter. And, uh, and I, the way you explain the difference between panpsychism and, uh, and consciousness as a whole, I think is something that we're, it's going to be unavoidable for us to deal with today. But to begin with, Your book opens with a truly timely and meaningful quote in more than one way. Ideally, the quote begins, what should be said to every child repeatedly throughout his or her school life is something like this. You are in the process of being indoctrinated. Why did you choose to begin your book on this note? I think. In society today, we suffer exactly from what uh, the, the, the quote describes. Uh, we are indoctrinated uh, by our educational system, by the media. 
uh, into the idea that uh, unless you believe that uh, the world is essentially dead outside consciousness and mechanical and random in nature, a combination of the two, some randomness and some mechanical laws, unless you believe that, so the narrative goes, uh, you are deluded or you are entertaining wish fulfillment or you're gullible or you're stupid. So we've come to associate any ontology, any view of nature that allows room for, for, for life and, and, and meaning, we've come to associate that with uh, um, intellectual weakness. Um, and I think that is uh, entirely unjustified. I think uh, the reigning metaphysics of materialism, that the real reality is outside consciousness and somehow generates consciousness through specific arrangements of matter, that narrative, that metaphysics is extremely unparsimonious. Um, it postulates or infers all kinds of entities that we don't need to infer in order to make sense of experience. Uh, and in that sense, it's akin to, to the flying spaghetti monster. You cannot prove that it's wrong, uh, but it's unnecessary and inflationary. You shouldn't even be discussing that. We can explain all reality in terms of the behavior, the movements, the excitations of consciousness itself, of that which experiences. So, so now, Dr. Kastrup, just as a bit of a side, do you think it's only the science area that we're indoctrinated, or do you see this indoctrination going on in everything from value systems and political uh, to monetary distribution and so on and so forth? It goes everywhere, right? I mean, the metaphysics of materialism, regardless of its philosophical merits, which I think are, I think are very few or non-existent, but regardless of that, it's a metaphysics that's very conducive um, to our present economic system. I mean, if, if all there is, if all that endures is matter, consciousness itself being an evanescent thing, uh, destined to, to end at some point, then what meaning can there be to life other than the accumulation of matter, material goods, for as long as you're alive? And after that, you have nothing to lose anyway, because you're dead and gone anyway. So it, it's very conducive to, to this uh, runaway consumerism uh, that, that we live in today. And it has economic synergies. And I think this is part of the reason why it's so widespread beyond uh, academia. That's one of the things that I wanted to hear that from you, but that's exactly the point of a lot of my own work. It makes consumption puppets out of us. Your introduction states that your book has become an experiment in nonlinear philosophy. How so? <laughs> um, if, you, if you look at traditional philosophy books, uh, including my own previous book, uh, Why Materialism is Baloney, uh, it, it is a linear narrative. You try to build a system arguing one point after the other. You build your, your arguments uh, linearly until you arrive at the conclusion you want to arrive at. Um, that's all very well and good. Um, but what I did in Brief Peaks Beyond, I, I explored many different facets uh, of this one idea uh, that, uh, that, that, that the book explores. Uh, facets re uh, related to the economic system, facets related to the media, facets related, related to the culture and value system of science, and the philosophical facets themselves. And, and what emerges out of it is a sort of a collection of snapshots from different perspectives that I think, or at least that was my hope, allows the reader to put together a sort of higher dimensional picture in the reader's own mind, something that can't be directly done in writing. 
because language uh, enforces a linear narrative. Well, and I think your book does indeed uh, accomplish that. I, I found it, it is an outstanding read. Um, one of my associates said to me, uh, but he's not a philosopher, so why is he writing philosophy books? And I had to remind him that some of the greatest philosophers of all time have not been philosophers by way of education. They have been <laughs> scientists. We have a, a heartbreak coming up. When we come back, I, I want to ask you to define consciousness. Uh, that's probably the first place for us to start. You know, what is it you mean when you refer to consciousness? We're speaking with Dr. Bernardo Castrop about his life, work, research, and most recent book, Brief Peaks Beyond. To learn more about Dr. Castrop, visit his website at Bernardo Castrop. That spelling is K-A-S-T-R-U-P, BernardoCastrop.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Bernardo Castrup about his life, work, research, and most recent book, Brief Peaks Beyond. Now we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. As you hear me tell you every week, music is more important to us than many recognize, and the science just keeps unveiling more and more reasons as to why we should pay attention to the music we listen to. It can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance to many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So, we just played some of Floating by Klaus Schulz. Tell us, Dr. Kastrup, what, uh, what's the deal with this one? How does it instruct us about who you are? Why is this music special to you? Oh, it's a, it's a note piece from the 70s, electronic music. It was an experimenting sequencing. Uh, the song basically consists of two very simple uh, sequences of notes uh, with a slight phase difference between them. And if you hear each sequence in separation, it's, it's like nothing. It's four tunes. Uh, but when you put them together with this phase difference, it creates a rhythm and creates a melody. And uh, it, it, it's very experimental and, and very old, too. But I thought it was very interesting. I like the effect very much. Do you, do you meditate to this music or is this something you work with uh, in the background? How do you use it? Uh, sometimes in the background, meditating with it can work depending on the style of meditation that you want to achieve. If you're doing some Advaita-like meditation to to contact your awareness, I, I don't recommend this. Uh, it sort of entrains your brain uh, very much, and that's not what you want in certain styles of meditation. But uh, as, as a background song, a background music, just to keep you in the rhythm, if you're, if you're writing, for instance, uh, it works very well. So now if I were a politician, I might want to play it in the background subliminally while I so I stand a little bit elevated so your eyes are a little lifted and I entrain you and you go into this, you know, altered state of consciousness and buy everything I tell you, huh? <laughs> I had a thought about that. <laughs> Listen, I, uh, I suggested to you that after the break, I, I wanted you to define what you mean by consciousness. So when you speak about consciousness, what is it you're talking about? Uh, many people mean very different things. So I think it's, it, it's, it's good that you call for a definition so we have clarity. I define consciousness as that whose excitations are experiences themselves or that which experiences. Um, any other definition would be loaded with metaphysical assumptions or metaphysical prejudices and biases, like consciousness is the quality of the soul, or consciousness is the emergent property of, uh, of collections of neurons. This is very metaphysically biased already. It's, it's an overloaded definition that already has built into it a particular prejudice about the nature of reality. That's why I like to say consciousness is simply that whose excitations are experiences themselves, whatever the intrinsic nature of consciousness might be. Okay, so <clears throat> when you define consciousness, you're talking about experiences. Or the ground of experience. Uh, 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 
I see experiences as the excitations of consciousness. In that sense, I'm rendering consciousness as slightly abstract, uh, but I think it's the most parsimonious definition, the most clear and specific definition that we can come up with uh, for consciousness. Because right. consciousness itself is what we are. It's, it, it's the starting point of all reality. Knowledge exists within experience. Uh, whatever is completely out of your experience, either directly or indirectly, through the reports of others, which you experience as well, might as well not exist. Whatever is outside of consciousness might as well not exist and exists only as an abstraction of consciousness. So as the primary datum of reality, as the starting point of all thoughts, theories, uh, uh, assumptions and inferences, we can't define consciousness very directly for the same reason that we can't see our own eyes without a mirror. Consciousness is that which is doing the defining. Um, so to define it accurately in a way that is uh, 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 operational, uh, we have to define it in terms of its behaviors. That's why I say it's simply that whose excitations, whose behaviors are experiences. Okay. So then, you know, the next obvious question would be, how does um, our consciousness, your consciousness, my consciousness, any Homo sapiens sapiens consciousness differ, or does it, from that of a porpoise, a dolphin, or for that matter, an ant? Clearly, the contents of the specific consciousness field of different living beings uh, differ. Uh, there's enough uh, uh, reason to infer that uh, the contents of my consciousness are different from the contents of your consciousness right now. I'm experiencing my home office right now, and it's night in Europe. Uh, you're experiencing your studio uh, in, in the bright sunlight uh, of California, I assume. Um, but consciousness itself, as that whose excitations are experiences, I think is exactly the same across all living beings. Only the particular excitations, the particular contents of consciousness, the particular modulations of consciousness differ uh, between different living beings, I think. Okay, I just want to be clear on this. So if we can, let's speak about ants and bees and other colony insects for a moment. It's often argued that the colony intelligence arises from the collective operation. The word everyone chooses is emerges. Intelligence emerges. So ants then bury their dead in the dedicated graveyards and the like. Now, you insist that the materialistic view of an emerging consciousness is insane. Please unpack that for us. The first thing we have to do, I think, is to differentiate intelligence from consciousness. Intelligence okay. is a particular way of processing information in order to react to environmental stimuli, for instance. I don't doubt that intelligence can emerge. More complex computer software is more intelligent in the sense that it processes information in a more sophisticated way than simpler pieces of software. So intelligence can emerge bottom-up. The question is, is that information processing accompanied by subjective experience? Is there anything it feels like to process that information? That is what consciousness is. I can, I can co conceive of a highly intelligent computer uh, that is not conscious. In other words, there is nothing it is like to be that computer. Its computations are not accompanied by subjective experience. Uh, Consciousness itself, subjective experience, I don't think you put it together bottom-up. The assumption that we can put more complex minds, subjective uh, minds capable of subjective inner life, that we can put these complex minds together by 
connecting little bits of matter in more and more complex ways uh, assumes implicitly or even explicitly that consciousness itself is fragmented, just like matter is fragmented. You see, when we look out to the world, we see bits and pieces of matter. And if we go to the, to the Large Hadron Collider, where we blow matter to pieces, we see even much smaller little pieces of matter that we call subatomic particles. But these are the excitations of consciousness. The excitations of consciousness, in other words, what we see, what we experience around us, have a fragmented structure. But that doesn't mean that consciousness, consciousness itself also is fragmented. Uh, I like to give an analogy for this. If you, if you drop a pebble in calm waters, uh, you will see rings of ripples, concentric rings of ripples forming uh, from the point of impact. But we don't say that water is made of concentric rings. Concentric rings are the structure of the ripples, of the excitations of water, not of water itself. For the same reason, I think the fragmentation of matter is the structure of the behavior of consciousness, the excitations of consciousness, not of consciousness itself. And if that is the case, it is nonsensical to say that you can build complex consciousness by putting together little bits of consciousness because we don't have any reason to believe that consciousness is fundamentally fragmented in little bits to begin with. Okay. Implied in what you just said is this idea that there is uh, no separation in consciousness, that there's like one mind, one consciousness. Is that what you're saying? I think that is the most parsimonious explanation for what we we see around us. And uh, if, if I can unpack this a little bit, because it may sound contrary to intuitive at first, since Please. we all seem to have completely separate inner lives, right? Right. Uh, you see, if we start from consciousness being fundamentally fragmented, uh, we, we face two problems. One is we don't have any reason to believe it's fundamentally fragmented for the reasons I just explained. And two is we do not know or of any physical process that can merge subjective mentation together. Uh, neurons don't even touch each other. So how come a, a unified psyche emerges out of little pieces of psyches in different neurons? There is no physical process that accounts for this. Uh, it's known through, in different words, in different fields. Uh, one is the binding problem, another one is the hard problem of consciousness. We can't account for any physical process that binds uh, consciousness, bits of consciousness together. Uh, but then we are left with having to explain how I seem to have a separate inner life from from, from other people and other living beings. I think it's much easier to start from consciousness being one and explain separate inner lives through a process of top-down dissociation instead of bottom-up combination of fundamentally separate bits of consciousness. And the reason is we understand psychological dissociation. It's when mental contents that evoke each other begin to evoke each other in a little cluster and not evoke mental contents outside that cluster. People manifest dissociation all, all the time, sometimes uh, to, a, to a small degree, like when you're forgetful or when you, you don't recognize your emotions or your actions just five minutes earlier. That's a mild form of dissociation. All the way up to dissociative identity disorder, where a person can have multiple personalities that sometimes don't know of each other or know of each other but hate each other and wants to hurt each other, that's severe dissociation. It's a well-understood psychological process. It's seen empirically in, you know, any, in uh, any ward in a psychiatric hospital. We have multiple caves of this. Any analyst, we have seen this in the therapy room. And it's more or less understood at a theoretical level as well. 
through the idea of mental contents becoming uh, uh, internally associated and losing the power to evoke anything outside a certain cluster of, of mental contents. I think this is much more sane. It doesn't require any appeal to magic, any appeal to an unknown physical process. It's much more sane to explain reality as a top-down dissociation of one consciousness as opposed to a bottom-up combination of the gazillions of little bits of consciousness, which has two fundamental problems. So implied again in what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that you and myself and all of our listeners out there are experiencing a state of disassociation. Uh, That's correct. In, okay. Um, in, in this state of disassociation, we are under the illusion that we're separate, but indeed we're not? That would be uh, the implication, yes. And notice that this doesn't follow from spirituality. It follows from a, a very cold, hard-nosed, analysis of what the implications of different ontologies are. Uh, I think, in a sense, you know, people who have dissociative identity disorder, the different personalities are technically called alters. Um, so uh, a person with three different personalities has three uh, uh, split-off or, 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 or disassociated alters. I think we are all dissociated alters of one mind at large, uh, in the words of... Um, of Aldous Huxley, or, or in the words of uh, my friend Deepak Chopra, a, a cosmic consciousness. In other words, one unified mind uh, that uh, dissociates itself into multiple uh, split-off or dissociated alters. And I think each living creature is the image of a dissociated alter in this mind at large. So when we die, we basically reassociate, if you will, back into this one mind. So then, for all intent and purposes, uh, again, using metaphors, you like the water metaphor, we're like the drop uh, of, of water in the sea, uh, the ocean. Is, is that how um, I'm to understand you? My favorite, meta my favorite metaphor would be that of uh, whirlpools. Um, if you imagine a little stream, and whirlpools forming into them. What is a whirlpool? It's a process of localization of water in the stream. Water circles around a certain point and becomes localized instead of traversing the entire stream. Um, there is nothing to a whirlpool but water. It's just water in movement. It's a particular localization of the movement of water. Yet you can delineate its boundaries and you can point at it and say, there is a whirlpool. I think our brains are the image of a whirlpool uh, in the stream of consciousness itself. We can point at the brain, we can point at our bodies and say, there is a body. We can delineate the boundaries of the body. Yet, I contend that there is nothing to the body, to the brain, but consciousness, in exactly the same way that there is nothing to a whirlpool, but water. To say that the brain generates consciousness is akin to saying that a whirlpool generates water, which is absurd. I understand that. So you're talking about each of us as though we're an expression and activity. Uh, that's what, what a whirlpool is. It's when we know a whirlpool because of its actions. And, and each of us as human beings then are um, simply fragments, disassociated fragments of one greater mind, one mind. That is correct. You we even have, refer we... to that as God. 
I think it's a valid name. I'm usually very careful with the word God because it's the most overloaded word uh, in the English language. Probably in every language, there are, I think there are 7 billion different definitions for the word God. Um, but in general, I think it is valid, valid to think of the stream, to think of mind at large as what mythology throughout history has called God. And in that sense, we are dissociated alters of God, if you will. Now, it sounds to me like process theology. White Whitehorn and Reese uh, talk about what they called panentheism. You're familiar with that? The idea that each of us... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, when you said process, do you mean process, process. philosophy of uh, Alfred North, North Whitehead? No, no. Uh, Hartshorn and Reese. It's called process theology or panentheism, P-A-N-E-N theism. Uh, but it's the idea that uh, the cells of the body um, are unto us as we are unto God. Um, but if I understand you correctly, you're basically saying God is mind or one mind, consciousness, so we'll just say consciousness. God is consciousness, and we are aspects of that consciousness that dissolve upon death back in to the whole of consciousness as the whirlpool may break up if I move the rock that is causing that activity. That is correct. If you take a person with, maybe this, this explains better what I mean. If you take a person with dissociative identity disorder, a person originally called multiple personality disorder, if you put that person in a brain scanner, a functional brain scanner or, a, or an fMRI, and this is an experiment that has been done last year and published last year uh, on, on, on PLOS One, you see the image of those dissociated processes in the person's brain. Dissociated processes have an image. They look like something. They are identifiable. Uh, you need a brain scanner to, to see through the skull. My contention is that the universe itself is to the inner life of God, or mind at large, as a brain is to the inner life of a person. In other words, the brain is the second-person perspective of the conscious processes that make up the inner life of a person. I think the empirical universe that we see through our sense perceptions is the second-person perspective of the inner life of God. So in a sense, we are already living within God's brain, and we don't need a, a scanner to pierce through any skull uh, to look at the cognitive activity within that brain because we are already in. And in exactly the same way that dissociated processes in a person with dissociative identity disorder look like something, under a functional brain scanner, I think dissociation in the mind of God, in mind at large, looks like something. And to see that, since we are already inside God's brain, between quotes, we just need to look around. And I think the image of, the, of that dissociated process is a living body, is biology. I think life is what the process of dissociation in mind at large looks like from the point of view of other dissociated alters of mind at large. All right. Does this, make, does this make any sense? <laughs> no, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But what I'm trying to do is, is fit it with everything else that I'm aware of. So, for example, uh, I know you're familiar with Benjamin Libet's work, Cortical Evoked Potential, the, the so-called P300 wave. We right. know that there is activity that occurs in the brain before there's a conscious awareness of that activity. Right. 
In fact, so, you, you like fMRI. We now know that a MRI technician watching your brain make a simple choice can know six seconds before you consciously know what it is that you're going to choose. So how is this yeah. interplay? How is this interaction taking place? What We are really a third perceiver. The brain itself is a second perceiver of the one mind. I, I mean, trying to see the order, the mechanic of how this takes place. I think it's much simpler than that. Um, you see, if all is in consciousness, then there is only consciousness and there is no unconscious. There is nothing that is not outside consciousness. Yet we have to account for the fact that uh, we are not aware of everything that is happening in the universe. And also, we are not aware of everything that is happening in our brains. For the, you mentioned one example right now. So there is one extra element that we need to add to this to make, to make sense of this understanding. What we normally, ordinarily call consciousness is not the whole of consciousness. It's one particular quality, one particular configuration of consciousness that we might call self-reflective awareness. It's the awareness that you are aware. It's the capacity not only to think and experience, but to think about your thoughts, to ponder about experiences. And I, my contention, and that comes from neuroscience as well, uh, and I can explain later why, uh, is that our ordinary awareness is a specific configuration of consciousness that because of this self-reflectiveness amplifies uh, mental content, contents that fall within the scope of our attention. But that's a very small subset of consciousness, what falls within our self-reflective attention. There is a lot more going on in consciousness, which becomes, if you will, obfuscated by the glare of that which falls within the scope of attention. I mean, an analogy that I like to make is uh, at noon, in a bright sunny day, you can see the sun, but you cannot see the stars with clear skies because the sun obfuscates the stars. The stars are all still there. Their photons are still going through the atmosphere and hitting your retina. Technically, you are seeing the stars, but you don't know that you are seeing them because they are obfuscated by the much stronger glare of the sun. My contention is that ordinary awareness is like the glare of the sun. The mental contents that fall within the field of attention, of self-reflective attention, become amplified and obfuscate everything else that's going on in a broader field of mind. But it doesn't mean that the rest is not in consciousness for, ex for exactly the same reason that uh, it doesn't mean that the stars are not in the noon sky. They are all still there. So the, the Libet's experiments where they can predict uh, in advance uh, which uh, uh, choice you're going to make only shows that the choice is made in obfuscated regions of your consciousness. You still make the choice in consciousness, but it takes a, a, a certain delay for that choice to come into the field of self-reflective awareness so you can report to the experimenter, I made the choice. In fact, you have already made the choice with your obfuscated mind or which others might call the subconscious mind or the quote unconscious mind which are which i think are misnomers the choice is made in obfuscated regions of consciousness uh, maybe outside uh, egoic egoic control or, or egoic awareness which is all this right i'm going to ask you to hold it right there that makes perfect sense when we come back though we'll pick that back up if you would like to know more about dr bernardo castrop and his work research and most recent book brief peaks beyond 
Uh, visit his website at bernardocastrop.com or check out his YouTube channel. He, he has some marvelous uh, uh, videos up on his YouTube channel that explain everything that we're talking about today. Now, we have a video for you during the break that features our guest discussing the limits of science. You can view it by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Bernardo Castrup about his work, research, metaphysical speculations, and most recent book, Brief Peaks Beyond. Now, Dr. Castrup, we just played your second musical choice, Shoreless, To Live in Poland, by, again, Klaus Schultz. Tell us, uh, what's the story? Is this the same kind of, uh, of music? No, that's not sequencing. It, it's just a tune I like. I'm, I'm not sure I can say much more about it. Uh, I, I find it uh, um, it puts me in a certain rhythm, 
that facilitates uh, thinking sometimes. I, I just enjoy it. It's pure enjoyment. Just enjoy it. It has no meaning to you. If you were in a coma somewhere, do or don't play that to you. Uh, no, I'm a simpler man than that. I just enjoy it. <laughs> you just enjoy, I, don't, I don't buy that. I'm a simple man. Okay. <laughs> All right, listen. I want to make sure before I, I ask this next question that I've got this correct. So I just want to kind of stratify it for our, for my, my benefit as well as our listening audience. Self-aware, that's, that's a level of what we can think of as our local consciousness. Then there is a larger level of our local consciousness that we can think of as just the total of our personal consciousness. Like you, I don't like the term subconscious, unconscious, and so forth. But, okay, we'll just say personal consciousness. And then there is the stratification that is the total consciousness, the collective or the one mind. Have I got that right? I think these three levels are the ones we can rigorously infer based on logic and empirical evidence, yes. Okay, then good. Dealing with that, one of the objections some have to your position is that the illusory nature of the is is that of the illusory nature of the physical world. I mean, it's one thing to speak of whirlpools that do not generate water by way of your comparison to a body brain system that doesn't generate consciousness, but quite another to deny the physical reality of your body when it cries out with something like the ruptured appendix. So a two-part question, if you will. The first part, how do you respond to the problem of the physical urgency that we all experience in some time during our lives? And I mean, do you want us to think this is an illusion perpetrated by mind at large? Perpetrated is the active word. And second part, how does this in any way help us understand our world or prepare us to be better human beings? I don't deny the physical at all. What is the physical? The physical is the experience of palpability, concreteness, solidity, uh, of, of, of the living, felt presence of the world. It's the experience of not, not having volitional control over how the world unfolds. All these are qualities of experience. Concreteness is a quality of experience. It's nothing else. Solidity is a quality of experience that you can feel with your fingers, uh, that you can push against. I don't deny the physical insofar as the physical is a set of experiences, which is all we can really know. What materialism does, materialism denies the physical, not me. Materialism says that the experience of concreteness, of palpability, of solidity, all experiences for that matter, are created by your brain inside your skull, and that the world outside has none of those qualities because it has none of the qualities of experience. The real world of materialism is pure abstraction. It's something akin to mathematical equations. I deny that delusion. I deny that abstraction, that gratuitous inference that we do not need to make sense of reality. I do not deny the physical. I do not deny the felt urges of the body, the pain of the ruptured appendix, uh, the, 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 the hardness of a rock hitting you in the head, the impact of a train if you throw yourself in front of one. These are all qualities of experience. And my position is they are really real. They are not... Uh, uh, copies engendered and creation created by your brain inside your skull. So in other words, this is not an illusion. What is the illusion is the idea that 
my consciousness is uniquely mine and participates in no other realm of consciousness. What is the illusion is that your experiences are modulated by some kind of ghost world completely outside experience. That inference which is made in order to explain why we share the same world, because after all, if you're dreaming, how come we are having the same dream, right? Or to explain the fact that we don't have volitional control over how the universe unfolds. It's an inference aimed at, at, at explaining certain aspects of experience, but it's not something that we feel from directly. It, it, it's not a part of direct experience. It's an intellectual inference. I deny the need for that intellectual inference. I think it's inflationary because we can explain things in a better way. I certainly do not deny the reality of experience, which is all the reality we can really know. Okay, but I'm not sure that you gave me a clear answer here, so I guess I'm a little slow, and I'm going to ask once again. The illusion that I gain from reading your work studying your teaching is the notion that my consciousness is not a part of a greater consciousness. Is that the illusion? No, the illusion is the explanation that we learn after we grow up. If you could drop everything you think to know about reality and go back to what you felt, the way you experienced the world when you were two years old, you would know what I mean. When you were two years old, there was only experience. Some of it were, was imaginary, some of it was not. You couldn't make the difference. There was only experience. You didn't, you didn't have a theory telling you that, that that experience was created by arrangements of matter in your brain and modulated by sense perceptions coming from a world outside experience. This is all theory. What I'm denying is that metaphysics, that theory that we learn later in life. What I'm saying is that reality is exactly what it seems to be. It has the qualities of experience. Now, that said, we need to infer something a little beyond personal experience in order to explain how we seem to all share the same world, why we are not having our own private dreams, how come we are all connected, and how come we don't have any volitional control over the world. Uh, that is the inference of mind at large. If we are dissociated alters of, the si of a single mind, then we are like islands in the ocean, and we experience the same world because we are all within the same ocean. And, and we don't have volitional control over the unfolding of that ocean, of the empirical world, because our volition itself is also dissociated from the rest. It's also, it, it is also localized like the whirlpool, and it has no control over how the stream itself unfolds. That is the inference that goes beyond personal experience. Other than that, what I'm saying is I'm denying the, the crazy delusional theories that we are taught uh, after we grow up. Okay, if, you know, I have a disassociative identity patient. Uh, the patient, for all intent and purposes, may well not know about the multiple personality aspects of themselves. So in that sense, the personality A may declare that they are only personality A in that set of consciousness. And that is an illusion. Because there's also personality B, maybe personality C, all inhabiting this same state of consciousness. I see where you're going now. Okay, so my question then is, when people look at this entire argument, many of them want, well, in fact, let me 
back up, and let's just do it this way. Let's go at it from a theological standpoint, because this is an argument of metaphysics that you've put forward, and that invokes theology. We have basically two popular views. We have the cosmogony of of Christians, the the notion of how God created the earth and resurrection and Christ and, and so on and so forth. And then we have the interpretation that you can think more of as Hindu and Buddhist, nirvana. Now, I don't want to leave anyone out. The Muslims have a a similar uh, belief system to Christians and the Jains and so on and so forth. They'll tend somewhere. But we basically have these two views, a view that is there, you know, will escape the wheel of rebirth, moksha, merge to the one, find nirvana, return to the state of pure consciousness, uh, and the view that we are individuals and uh, we will resurrect. And and your position, if I understand you correctly, leans way away from the Christian perspective. You would say that that's an illusion. Now, have I got that right? I'm not sure. Um, okay, let me make a couple of comments. I think the idea that we are separate psyches, separate minds, that's an illusion for exactly the same reason that your patient with dissociative identity disorder who says, I am personality A, uh, is in, in illusion, is deluded, he is more than personality A. For that right. exactly same reason I am with you, our sense of separateness, of personal identity, is an illusion in thought, in consciousness. Um, that matches up very well indeed with the mind-only Buddhism, with Advaita Vedanta, and many traditions from the East. Um, your next point was it doesn't match with Christianity. There I am not sure. Christianity is a much more uh, mythological, symbol-rich tradition than, than the Via Negativa that you find a lot in the East. But there have been... Uh, uh, Theologians within Christianity, like Meister Eckhart, for instance, who are very close to this via negativa uh, thing, very close to, to, the, to the Eastern approach. And if you look uh, at some of the things that are talked about in Christianity, like uh, the descent of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, which basically renders every man and woman and child alive uh, equivalent, in a sense, to Jesus as the incarnation of God, or Jesus being God incarnate, being the Son of God and God himself. These things reveal symbolically a strong kinship between personal identity and God, in other words, between the whirlpool and the stream, between a dissociated altar and mind at large. So they are saying, even in Christianity, in symbolic ways, in my view, according to my interpretation, that in fact an incarnate soul is God, uh, that these are different points of view of one and the same entity undergoing different internal processes. However, one significant difference that we're missing here is the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation to a Christian can be earned, or perhaps it's up to the grace of God, depending on which you know uh, denomination you might be practicing. But salvation is the idea that as an individual, you will be saved. So, in fact, some some Christians go as far as to seal themselves to their families so that on the other side they share their wife and their children uh and and what it seems to me that what you're suggesting says 
that that is just simply a delusion. I wouldn't. I, I don't want to go that far. Um, mm. Keep in mind that uh, what I try to do is not. I, I'm not in the business of spirituality. I, I, I'm trying to uh, look rigorously at what we know on the basis of logic, reason, and empirical evidence, and try to come up with the simplest, most parsimonious explanation for what we experience, for the reality we know, with the highest possible explanatory power. And, and I've come to these conclusions from that perspective. Okay. After that, relating that to religion is a bonus. And, and I think there are many echoes, many resonances with the religious traditions of the world uh, in which people, I think, have arrived at the same conclusion through direct experience as opposed to through reason and intellectual thinking. Um, but the conclusions are the same and there is resonance there. That doesn't mean, of course, that everything that is in every uh, traditional religious book in the world should be confirmed or denied by an ontology. I think Religion has a value of its own. It also gets into morals and ethics, which I don't get into at all. It, it's not my area. It's not my business. Um, I wouldn't go as far as saying that uh, it's an implication of my philosophy that uh, a lot of that is delusional. I don't know that because I haven't studied it in, in enough uh, in enough depth uh, right. to I, issue I, I a conclusion. Wanna, I don't want to badger you. I, I'm looking at the implications, and you... You know, you do state flat out in your book uh, that God is om- omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Right? That was that was inspired by by a, a discussion I had with uh, Jerry Coyne, a famous atheist, who who stated that uh, God, God is a fictional figure, figure, and therefore theology has no value because it's the study of a fictional figure. And my point was that the word God could be applied to mind at large, because if there is only one mind, then by definition, and if if, if all reality is the excitation of that one mind, local processes in that one mind, then by definition that one mind would be omniscient, omnipresent and omnipotent, uh, and therefore the word God had some value, and theology had some value. That, 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 that was the point of, uh, of, of that statement. All right. Okay. Let, let, let's do this for a second. Let's go back to those MRI studies and, uh, and this six to ten second delay that we find between when the aware part of personal consciousness becomes aware of that part of personal consciousness that's already made a decision. Uh, it, 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 from your own work, from your own your, your own way of saying this, what's your position then on free will? If 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 the that non-conscious part of our personal consciousness is making these decisions outside of the scope of our awareness, and it is our awareness that, if you will, the proverbial tail to the dog that just believes it's making the decision. And we have all kinds of evidence that, well, I mean, we know that you will make up reasons for why you decide to do things, that you're just totally unaware of the reason. We have all kinds of experiments that we do that with. Is is this mind at large giving us thoughts? Is there free will? Or, or is this all part of a predetermined kind of a scheme? How do you see that unfolding? <laughs> I think the very concept of free will uh, uh, is faulty. It, there is no uh, epistemological room for, the, for, for what we think of as free will. Think about it. For us, if something is determined by certain imperatives, 
then it's not free because it's determined. But if something is random, completely random, then it's also not free will because our free will is not random. It's based on our wishes, preferences, idiosyncratic desires, tendencies, whatever. So we are trying to find epistemological space between randomness, which is not free will, and something that is determined, which is also not free will. Well, guess what? There isn't that epistemological uh, space. There's nothing in between randomness and determination. Uh, what we actually mean, our intuition about free will, which is correct, is something else. Uh, let me give you an analogy. If I say that I work because I need to, I need to work, and that's why I go to work every day, that's not my free choice, because it's, it's the, the imperatives of society, which are external to that which I identify with, I identify with my body, the imperatives of society force me to go to work. That's not free will. But if I say I go to work because I like it, I want to go to work, I feel useful, I feel my life has meaning if I go to work, that is also an imperative. It is not random. You have an imperative to go to work. The only difference is that the imperative is within that which you identify yourself with. You identify with your thoughts, emotions, tendencies, uh, predispositions, predilections, and so forth. That is the only difference. It is always, every choice is determined by certain imperatives. It is not random. Free will is when those imperatives are within that which we identify with. The problem is usually we identify with only a small part of our conscious activity, that, uh, that field of self-reflective awareness within the, the locus of our attention. And decisions often are made outside of that field, like in the experiments you mentioned. That's why we, we are inclined to say that defies free will. It doesn't, because in fact, you are the one consciousness. All imperatives are internal to you, because in fact, you are mind at large. You just think that you're not. You identify with, with a certain patterns of localized thoughts, feelings, and, and emotions in, in, in that mind, uh, because that's what culture tells you, and that's what you mistakenly construe, because you are with within this dissociated state. So I think the concept of free will is malformed. The intuition is correct. And if you stick to the intuition, there is free will at the level of mind at large, not at the level of personal egos. I don't think personal egos have choices. We can't even choose our own thoughts. Can you stop your neurosis? Can you choose not to have your ne next negative thought? You can't. Uh, you don't have free will at that level. But at the level of your true identity, I think you do. Krishnamurti said, uh, choices is an illusion. Uh, do I do this or do I do that arises out of confusion when I know clearly there is no choice. So it is all, after all, an illusion. But given your definition and your explanation, what do we do with criminal behavior? I mean, uh, are, are we basically saying that criminality is, uh, is something that... Um, is just kind of set in motion based upon all the circumstances that come together that don't offer an alternative, a choice? Ultimately, yes. But I think our laws have to be defined uh, along very pragmatic lines. I don't think a criminal law should be based on, on punishment, on, on, on revenge, on tip for tap. I think criminal law should be based on very pragmatic reasoning. Uh, if somebody has proven capable to be harmful to society and becomes a danger to the community, that person should be isolated in order to prevent further danger to the community. I'm not about a, a, a 
putting forward the idea that everybody should should get a free ticket out of prison. But I think criminal law should not be based on this naive uh, idea of uh, punishment and, and, and revenge. And it should be based on very pragmatic choices about what allows society to work in as harmonious a way as possible. So the penology system itself generally exacts uh, punishment for the for the purposes of society. Society demands it, uh, has in the past. Is, is, is the demand by society, is that under the purview of their free will? I mean, if we go out there and we run a, a survey today, we're going to find that society will be disgusted when you, um, you do something like uh, under-sentence someone for a crime or... Uh, allow them to roll back out into society for what we think of as the the nonviolent crimes, but are still uh, maybe burglaries that are removing properties from people's homes. Uh, how do you see squaring with the the nature of your penology versus the demands of the non-existent free will of society itself? I think these decisions, these choices can be made uh, even outside of, of an ontology, of a certain uh, philosophical view of the nature of reality. I think they can be made on, on entirely pragmatical terms. If somebody is a danger to the community, that somebody should not be allowed to, to roam freely through the community. Beyond that, my personal opinion, which is not directly related to my philosophy, I think uh, uh, criminal behavior, to some extent at least, should be treated as, as a psychic uh, condition and should be treated as an illness, but independent and in parallel to that treatment, nobody uh, who is uh, considered to be a danger to the community uh, should should be allowed to roam freely uh, through the community for very pragmatic terms, not necessarily because of any uh, moral or ethical system based on a particular metaphysics. I think this is uh, splitting hairs at the level of society. All right. Well, we have another break coming. We could spend uh, two hours on just this subject. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at eldon at eldentaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. Now, in this next uh, half hour, we will take your phone calls, or you can submit your questions or queries of Dr. Kastrup in our chat room. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Gotcha. The explosive new book by New York Times bestselling author Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to win the hearts and minds of the public. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. Your very decision process is being managed and manipulated, and the quest for discovering your real self becomes exponentially more difficult, if not impossible, as a result. Order now. EldonTaylor.com slash gotcha. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. 
Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Dr. Bernardo Castrup about his work, research, metaphysical speculations, and most recent book, Brief Peaks Beyond. It's a great read. You're going to want to get a copy of this one. If you enjoy what you've been listening to for the last 90 minutes, you're going to want to get more than just this one. And and, and once again, I'm going to tell you, check out his YouTube channel. There's really a lot of powerful information there. Okay, in this half hour, we'll take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback. Uh, and Facebook is a great place for that. So join me on Facebook. All right, Dr. Uh, Kastrup, we just played your third musical choice, Mirage, Crystal Lake, Velvet Voyage. Now it's Klaus Schultz again. Do you know this guy personally, or is this the music you listen to in your own, you know, studio, or, 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 or what's the deal with this? <laughs> um, I, I just I just thought it was easy to pick three songs I like from him. Um, it, it, it's just, you know, it's one simple theme that gets repeated like a little mantra, like a drone of Hindu music, and then a theme unfolds around and arises out of that. I find that, that very appealing. Do you practice Hinduism? No, I, I actually I started studying Hinduism only a few years ago when people started pointing out to me that my philosophy had a lot in common with certain schools of Hinduism, like uh, like uh, Vedanta, specifically Advaita Vedanta. That's that's how I got acquainted uh, with it, but it, it's relatively recent. You seem like a very spiritual person. So I'm going to ask you a question. This past week, Dr. Richard Dawkins, and I'm sure you know who that is, was on Fareed Sakari's GPS TV show here in America. 
He pointed deliberately at presidential candidate Dr. Ben Carson, a famous neurosurgeon, calling his belief that there was a creator of it all, not just a random mutation in the name of natural selection, a disgrace, an absolute disgrace that a man of his standing would still argue that natural selection was inadequate for the explanation of human consciousness. Now, you argue that the evolution argument makes a fundamental conflation mistake. Please share that. Unpack it. Flesh it out for us. I think there is uh, enough evidence that uh, evolution by natural selection occurs. In other words, that species evolve from other species through the accrual of uh, genetic mutations that lead to a survival advantage. Right. Right. I think there's plenty of evidence for that. I don't dispute it. I think it's a good theory. The problem is uh, neo-Darwinists conflate that with the notion that the mutations at the root of the entire process are random. In other words, that they obey no trend, that there is no tendency, no direction, no goal, no telos, no purpose underlying the original mutations themselves, regardless of what happens afterwards when the mutations are selected for or not. Well, there is no evidence for this latter point because we have never run a randomness test in a sufficiently large sample of the mutations that have occurred through the through geological time uh, to see whether the original mutations, before they were either discarded or fixed by natural selection, whether those original mutations obeyed certain trends, certain directions. We simply do not know that. And to say that they didn't is an arbitrary statement uh, uh, akin to, 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 to a statement of faith. We, we, we just don't know. It's just that it's built into the, the, the ethos of neo-Darwinism that life and existence cannot have any meaning. Uh, but this is an arbitrary, uh, uh, an arbitrary uh, statement in principle. The, the evidence is not there. For all we know, uh, the original mutations obey certain trends, and evolution by natural selection is a kind of laboratory where different things are tried out and tested out to see whether they are getting as close to some kind of uh, universal telos. I don't know that that is the case, but I am open to this possibility because we do not have evidence that denies or makes it invalid. So then, and, and this is a personal opinion I'm asking you for, what, what do you think of Dawkins' comment uh, indicating that Ben Carson uh, uh, was a disgrace? I think Dawkins has become the very thing he abhors. He has become a fundamentalist himself. Uh, he has confused his skepticism with cynicism, which is an arbitrary intolerance or an arbitrary unwillingness to consider certain possibilities that the evidence does not allow us uh, to discard. But now, while we're on that, you know, I, I love your position on skepticism. We've had Michael Shermer on this show, and you discuss, you know, his role in the skeptical movement in your work. Indeed, you share a story about his wife's grandfather's radio and his reaction to it. So I, a two-part question, if you will. Uh, share Shermer's story with our audience, um, the story you tell in your book, and then place it in the context you share in the book, the role uh, skepticism should play today. Uh, uh, Michael, if you're hearing this, uh, uh, I'll, please forgive me if I don't share your story correctly. Uh, but as far as I remember, 
the story was that um, he was preparing to wed, to, to marry his wife. There was a wedding ceremony, and his wife is from Germany, from very close to where I live, here in Cologne. And, <clears throat> and she brought to the U.S. Uh, in her luggage uh, 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 an old transistor radio that belonged, I believe, to her grandfather or her uncle. I don't remember quite correctly. Grandfather, yeah, yeah. and and, it, and it, which did not work for decades. It, it was broken, and, and nobody had any hope for it. But it had symbolic value for her, so she kept it. And that radio, uh, for unknown reasons, uh, began to play when their wedding ceremony was starting. Uh, Michael had tried to make it play before. He put new batteries in it, uh, turned it on and off several times, tried everything, shook it, tried to fix it, and didn't work. It just didn't play. Uh, that was the day before, I believe, and during the ceremony it started playing, and he saw that as a highly synchronistic event that, uh, and I believe I can quote him uh, word by word here, shook his skepticism to the core. I I'm not reading it, I'm doing it from memory. Uh, Michael, right. forgive me if I'm misrepresenting mis <laughs> you. I thought that was unfortunate, because I think it's a misunderstanding of what skepticism means. An event like that should not shake anybody's skepticism. It should only shake, shake somebody's cynicism. You see, skepticism is not about how many degrees of freedom nature has to operate. Skepticism is not about constraining nature as much as possible and making as many things as possible impossible. That's not what skepticism is about. Skepticism is about explaining nature, whatever it is, with as few inferences and postulated entities as possible. That's what skepticism is. That's why we prefer evolution by natural selection instead of the flying spaghetti monster. We don't need to postulate that entity. We don't need to infer that entity to explain the evolution of the species. Um, I think if Michael would be truly skeptic, he would question whether we need the inference of a whole universe outside consciousness. That's what should be uh, critically evaluated here. And if you drop that because you conclude that you don't need it for very similar reasons that you don't need the flying spaghetti monster, then synchronicities become natural. They are no longer an anomaly because they are all unfolding within one and the same mind. So I think Michael should be more skeptic, not less. And if he's more skeptic, he will... Uh, model nature with less postulated or inferred entities, and there will be more degrees of freedom for phenomena that today he doesn't consider possible. Well, we're on that subject then. I, I'm going to have you pursue that a little bit and unpack something for our audience. Tell us about the BVG theory, the board goose Valenkin theorem, and its implication in your metaphysics versus, say, the position taken by those who oppose the idea that the universe had a beginning. Ah, uh, that came, I think you're, you're referring to an essay in my book about uh, a Twitter war between Professor Brian Cox and, uh, and, and Deepak Chopra. Right. Uh, what the theorem, okay. Deepak made a statement about the Big Bang being a primary cause of the universe and, and primary causes by definition cannot have explanation because there was nothing before them. Otherwise, that something else would be the primary cause. And, and uh, Brian Cox, basically said that, uh, alluded or, 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 inf or, or suggested the idea that there was no primary creation event, that the universe could go on forever. And what the theorem you refer to states is that there has to have been a primary creation event, that we can say that the universe unfolds eternally, forever, forward in time, 
but not backward in time. There has to be a primary cause. And then by definition, that primary cause cannot have a scientific explanation, which was the spirit and the essence of what Deepak had said. And, and, and he was made fun of and ridiculed by Brian Cox without scientific substantiation. Right. And that often seems to be the, the role that our cynics take, as opposed to even the informed position uh, of, you know, a, a scientist. I mean, and, and to me, now, I, I don't I'm not I'm not saying that Michael Shermer does that. I don't mean to imply that. But to me, it seems that, you know, there's this word that I just just comes to my mind when I hear that this word siloist. It's, it's just an example of a shallow scholar, someone who wears their intelligence like it were uh, stripes on their shoulders in the military, as opposed to engaging it as though it might have some computing capability. But all right, think, that's I, just... Go ahead, sir. I think the problem is militancy. Science, the essence of science, is incompatible with milit- militancy. Science is, is about remaining open to possibilities, staying open forever, netting, never uh, assuming that you've arrived at the final closed conclusion. Militancy contradicts that. And when you have militant scientists promoting the religion of scientism, I think that's where things go wrong. Yeah, that's you. You call that out as the difference between intellectual fundamentalism, and, and actually, you call it the defacement of reason. Is that right? I believe so. Yes, I think it, it contradicts reason. Yeah. All right. Let's let's talk about a couple of theoretical things that are also implied in your book, if we may. Uh, sure. Engineered memories. That's that's you know something that you discuss in your books, an emerging field of neuroscience that some promise to be able to engineer our memories. And indeed, the military is spending some money looking into this very subject at this moment, rewriting memories. Uh, if this is accomplished, what happens to your theories about consciousness? Nothing. Because, you see, uh, if all is in consciousness, then everything we call material, uh, be it uh, silicon chips or, or surgical knives or, or drugs, all things that influence our subjective state, those physical things are also processes in consciousness because there is nothing but processes in consciousness. So that a knock in the head changes your subjective state or that a surgical intervention in your brain changes your subjective state or that electrical stimuli in your brain Maybe if one day they, have to, they succeed in planting memories, which they haven't succeeded yet. But if they succeed, if that happens, this only means that certain processes in consciousness that we tend to call physical have an influence in other processes in consciousness that we call our inner life. This is no more surprising than the fact that your thoughts affect your emotions or the other way around. If all is in consciousness, what we call physical is also in consciousness. So, of course, it can influence our inner lives. So, if... Uh... If some application of this were such that in some science fiction kind of way uh, to fundamentally change the morality of the subject, uh, to create a disposable assassin as um, one of our clandestine research uh, projects of the past, the so-called Project Bluebird was all about. If, if that were manufactured artificially, done to an individual, uh, and the individual then acts upon that uh, from a moral standpoint. Is this is this individual culpable for his actions? 
I have difficulties with uh, uh, moral questions because it... But you're a human it, being, and you, and you have to take your philosophy to the real world. And remember the third segment of our, of our three things we want to know is how do we use this information? So I, I know I'm calling upon you outside the scope of science per se, but I'm calling on you as a human being now who, yeah. you know, you imbibe your own philosophy and you walk that talk, I would assume. So please. Okay. I'll, I'll try to give you an answer. Uh, our behavior is influenced by our education, by what we eat, by the media we consume, uh, by the loops of self-reinforcement that we seem to choose uh, to have in our own minds, by the environment we expose ourselves to, and by areas of mind that we don't identify ourselves with. And I think most of the influence comes from there, from those imperatives that are outside our whirlpool, our personal selves. So I don't think... Uh, if implanting memories were possible, which nobody has proven to be the case, despite claims to the contrary, even in the scientific literature, mm -hmm. I think that would change nothing in that respect. It would be just one more thing that influences our inner lives, one more psychic process in the form of what we call physical uh, that influences our inner life. I don't see any further consequence to that. What I would like to add, though, because I'm also looking at what people are commenting on the forum, on, on, in the chat room, is that uh, it's not an implication of what I'm saying, that there is no such a thing as free will. What I'm saying is that there is very little free will in that which we call our personal selves and which we misidentify with. If you misidentify with a particular one of your thoughts and you think, I am that thought, you might also think, oh, I have no free will now because my actions are determined also by all my other thoughts and feelings and I am not those, I am this specific thought. Well, that idea of lack of free will comes out of a delusion, out of a misidentification. I think the same thing is happening now. We, we misidentify with our personal selves. And at that level, we don't have free will. But that lack of free will arises from an illusion. What we really are is mind at large. And mind at large has total free will. Our lives are exactly what we want them to be at that level, which some mystics call the will of the heart, which is not the egoic will. Uh, and, and, and then you can build a moral around that, if you will. My personal choice is to build an ethics around uh, very pragmatic principles, not necessarily metaphysically based or religion based, very pragmatic about what allows society to work better. All right. So if you're pragmatic, then certainly you're not going to hold this individual responsible for actions uh, due to some implanted memory or implanted whatever is necessary to, to get them to behave in a given way that we would think is immoral. Is that true or is that false? I would, I'll try to rephrase what you said in words that I could subscribe to. I would say okay. for as long as, as this individual is a threat uh, to the community, he should be, one, helped and treated, and two, failing that, uh, one should ensure that he is not capable of causing uh, harm to the community, even if that means uh, imprisonment, uh, and even if the treatment require, uh, required is invasive. 
Uh, that's what I would think. This is the pragmatic standpoint, and I don't get into the issue of he's responsible or morally liable. I think these are abstractions and, and right. not necessarily helpful. So how about you personally, Dr. Kastrup? You pick up the newspaper and you read that uh, two young women in India, ages 15 and 23, were just sentenced to be raped and then paraded naked in public with their faces painted black because their brother ran away with a married woman. Uh, you, you, you read this. It took place in India. That's, you know, a long way away. I guess maybe you have some feeling towards it because of your study of Hinduism. And uh, when you look at that, does it pull at any strings of your own heart to say this is right or it's none of my business or it's culturally relative or... Or how do you use your philosophy as you've developed? How do we use it in our daily lives to be better human beings? What you just described would enrage my personal self. It would enrage me. to, to And it did, because I have seen this news as well. It did happen, uh, yes. But at the same time, you're not asking about my personal self and my emotional reaction. You're asking, what does my philosophy have to contribute to, uh, to this. From that perspective, I would say, uh, from the perspective, the detached perspective of philosophy and not from my emotional personal self, uh, I would say that we should take every action reasonably within our reach to prevent this from happening again. Wonderful. All right, sir, uh, one more question and, and, and that I've got to get in here. I understand there is a group that used to be in New York. They've now gone to South America. They they're taking money to clone human beings. What happens if we have a clone who becomes fully conscious? Is this all part of the same one mind created by man? If it is alive, if it manifests metabolism, negative internal entropy, in other words, self-organization, which locally, locally violates the second law of thermodynamics, if it has protein folding, physiology, reproduction. In other words, if it is alive, and since I consider life to be the life to be the image of a dissociative processing mind at large, I would say the answer to your question is yes, it is also a localized, dissociated altar of mind at large, cloned or not. Interesting. All right, sir, we have uh, roughly a minute. I want you to take uh, take that minute and tell everybody, one, where they can get your books, two, how they can connect with you, learn more about you, your website, your YouTube channel, etc., please. Uh, my website is uh, bernardocastrop.com. That's Bernard with an O at the end because my parents liked Italian names. Castrop, K-A-S-T-R-U-P.com. There are links to, to all my online presence in there, to my Facebook page, YouTube channel, Twitter page, and my Amazon uh, authors page. And so from any one of these pages, you can find all others and you can find all books as well. And uh, do you answer email? Uh, I, I do answer uh, messages on Facebook. Uh, I have a contact form on my, on my website, but I usually reserve that to, to media inquiries. And I have a forum. There's a link on my website, forum, at the top uh, uh, menu, uh, where I interact uh, with uh, readers and, and people who, who are interested in my ideas. Uh, there's a, a large group of people there, a couple of hundred people who, who regularly participate, and I interact with people there as well. All right. Again, the book we've been talking about is Brief Peaks Beyond. All of his books are worth reading. This is a great read. 
Uh, and I, I really encourage you to check out his YouTube channel and to get his books. And the next time you're having a conversation with someone that wants to tell you, uh, you're just all wet. The science, uh, you know, is hard and fast. Uh, you're just a meat machine and, and that's all there is to it. Uh, be sure you turn to this man's work. All right. Thank you for your work, Dr. Kastrup, and for your willingness to share it with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll join us again next time. All right? Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.